This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. What is time now for a monthly check-in with our friend Kevin Jones. He is our resident election guru, and he's also the leader of Indivisible Vashon. He also sits on the steering committee for the Washington Indivisible Network. Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm doing well, Stephen. How are you today? I'm good. We were just saying before we began that I think there are 11 Tuesdays before the election. Did, did we get that right? We're, we're 11 Tuesdays away from the big day. And uh, that's so 77 human days and uh, dog years. We, uh, you know, we'll have to figure that out later. But uh, yeah, it's coming up. Listen, you're the math guy. So you're going to have to multiply 77 times seven. I'll, I'll, I'll let you do that in your head. And I will do the things that I uh, have a natural. <laughs> okay. It's not math. Fair it's enough. not math. I'll tell you that. So listen, it's a, a team lot. Effort. Exactly. So, so much has happened since our last discussion about six weeks ago, uh, Washington's primary. Um, there have been a number of national developments that may have shifted the dynamics of this year's election. Uh, things like the Dobbs ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, the mm-hmm. Democrats' passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, the January 6th hearings, the FBI rate, on and on and on, on. How are you seeing the impact of all of this? You know, so we, we are checking now that most of the primaries are behind us and we've identified those close races. Now's the time to kind of see where things move just based on public opinion. Previously, we had, you know, the gerrymandering and other things affecting um, and new candidates, people dropping out. That's pretty much behind us now. So now we can kind of see how those factors affect the candidates. Um, There's some other things that are happening, of course, gas prices declining at the most rapid rate uh, that we've seen in a long time. Of course, when you get to the end of the summer, gas prices come down. So it actually, you know, would favor the administration. Um, but also inflation. I think more people are seeing that that's a global issue, not just a U.S. issue. Um, and The Economist just this week had a headline, Global Food Prices Tumbling, which is fantastic news because of the concern that was raised about whether the war in Ukraine might uh, impede grain shipments uh, from that mm-hmm. country, which is such a huge breadbasket for the world. I think a lot of us are, I think we're nervous about being optimistic, but certainly the trends are moving in the Democrats' direction. Uh, We've been hearing and reading that Mitch McConnell uh, is concerned about the Senate. He cites candidate quality. (laughs) I can think of two (laughs) candidates that that he's, I do too, I think two two candidates in particular I think he's referring to. Should we be encouraged by this? I'll just ask you. Well, I think that we're all encouraged by a couple of things that we're seeing play out in the news. The really radical right candidates who seem to be having some trouble. Um, But the other bigger trend that is very interesting to me is threats to democracy are now, according to a recent NBC poll, a top concern for voters. And this is very interesting that democracy polls at 21% of the voters are concerned about democracy. And I can tell you that, you know, six, eight, nine months ago, when I was talking about how big a deal will democracy be, you know, quite a few people were, yeah, that doesn't really poll very well. Okay, Okay. that's starting to change. And so democracy at 21%, cost of living at 16%, jobs at 14%, immigration at 13%, climate at 9%, guns and apportion tight at 8%, crime at 6%, COVID at 1%. There's a 3% margin of error here. So, you know, those items that are just, you know, sort of side by side are probably pretty equivalent in the American mind. But democracy is ahead of the next highest issue by 5% outside the margin of error. And so I think the the news is breaking through that radical Republicans are, are really a threat to our way of life. 
You know, I was going to ask you what your thoughts were on why that shift occurred. It's almost as if crime and threats to democracy almost flip-flopped in their position. It was, I think, very frustrating to uh, myself and a lot of our audience members that these threats to democracy, which are so apparent to us, were not breaking through for voters. So I I will just ask you, and this is somewhat unknowable, but this is what you traffic in. I wonder how a lot of this played out in our recent primary. Uh, I think a lot of people were very pleasantly surprised that the Democrats did as well as they did here in Washington. The red wave did not seem to really hit our shores. Were you surprised by that um i i listen to people express their concerns about whether or not our state senate and house would flip from blue to red um i looked at the numbers the margins that we have i feel pretty confident in washington state not for every single race but certainly uh in in the majority of them so uh, did i know how the primaries would come out no am i happy the way they did absolutely um Progressive candidates supported by our Washington State State Indivisible groups did very well with just a few exceptions and a few meaning, you know, three or four. Well, the good news, I think, generally across the board, save for those those few races, which we'll discuss. Um, I do want to start by talking about the premier race. Uh, this is Congressional District 8's uh, Dr. Kim Schreier. Happy birthday to you, Congresswoman. This is her birthday today. Uh, she she wound up drawing a surprise opponent. I think many people were surprised that MAGA Republican Matt Larkin uh, made it through. What can you tell us about the state of this race now? Well, looking at the primary results, we should all be pretty optimistic about uh, Kim Schreier's opportunity to retain her seat. She did receive 48% of the votes cast in the primary. And if you, so that's not a majority. um, But if you look at the number of progressive votes and the number of conservative votes cast based on the folks who ran in that race, she is a half a point ahead of the conservative votes. So, it is still one of the closest races that we have uh, in the state of Washington. But I will t- tell you that of the rating groups that I look at, like Cook Political Report, et cetera, one of those now says this race is no longer a toss-up. It's tilting to Kim. That's like one shade away from toss-up. So, so how does not, it go? It goes toss-up, lean, tilt, or tilt, lean? How, how does it uh, good, Yeah, it good question. Toss-up, tilt, lean, likely, and either solid or safe, depending on which organization. So, but the thing that we need to keep an eye on, I believe, is the trend is in the direction that we like to see. Moving away from that toss-up, you know, anybody's guess coin flip race into, it looks like she's got the momentum on her side. And I think it's fair to say that we know that polls are not always accurate. Certainly 2016 was a very, very strong reminder of that. And so we will keep our feet uh, firmly on the accelerator all the way through to November here in the 8th Congressional District. And, and that uh, is such an important thing because, yeah. as you as you mentioned, the, the things things do shift and things do change. But again, that is one of the closest races in Washington state. So while we can feel good about the results of the primary, resting on our laurels is, is not the right approach now. Yeah, we need to keep, keep moving forward. 
Thank you for saying that. And I think you said that in a very, uh, very fatherly way. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> so an- another surprise, I think, to a lot of people was the race down in the third congressional district. This is a southern part of the state down in the Vancouver area. In- incumbent uh, Republican Jamie Herrera Butler did not make it past the primary. One can presume because of her vote to impeach Trump after January 6th. Uh, she came in behind uh, MAGA Republican Joe Kent and Democratic challenger Maria Glusenkamp Perez. This was previously a soft are race have the primary results changed that dynamic according to the folks that i look at and these are the ones who call the how close the race is right that toss-up lean tilt deal so yes um the race as you mentioned previously a solid r solid republican sabato now rates this race as a likely r okay and Cook now rates this race as lean R. So again, uh, likely is pretty much assured that uh, that the Republican's going to win. Cook is kind of playing a middle ground here, um, that uh, there's m- possibly an opportunity to overturn this. Now, um, you know, we have added now uh, Marie Perez to Take Action Network. So our, our listeners who are familiar with how to find those volunteer opportunities, She's there. Go support that race if uh, that's an area of concern, uh, particularly if you live in the third. That's going to be a big deal for you. And we know that we have reach in the third uh, congressional district. And so we are going to be reaching out to uh, Marie Glusenkamp Perez uh, for a uh, an interview with her on the podcast, so watch this space for that. Um, I also want to talk about the Senate race. There was a little bit of concern that uh, Patty Murray might have had something of a challenge from Republican Tiffany Smiley. Uh, talk about the results here. Yeah, um, th- those are that's another good trend for us. You know, I kind of love the advertisement where they had Patty's face morphing into Joe Biden's face. But I think with all the recent federal legislative wins, that may have helped her. Um, so <laughs> at one time, Patty, one of the um, groups rated Patty is only a likely Democrat, a likely Democrat uh, to retain that seat. And now all the pollsters, all of the pundits have moved her into solid Democrat. Um, so that's very good. She did receive a majority of the vote at 52 percent in the primary. Very encouraging. Uh, I also want to talk about the one statewide race, uh, statewide race that we are tracking. That is the Secretary of State race. Um, current Democrat Secretary of State Steve Hobbs did surprisingly well, I think. And uh, the Republicans in the race split the vote so that the self-professed nonpartisan Julie Anderson is also going to advance. This means, among other things, that for the first time in about 60 years, a Republican will neither be running in the election nor will hold that position. What do you make of these results? I'm I'm encouraged by the results. Um, it would be I'd be happier if Steve had retained more than forty percent of the vote, which is what he got in the primary. Um, the other data that I look at is again that combination of progressive votes versus conservative votes, and in this case now we have independent votes. If you add all of that up, you know forty eight percent of the votes were progressive, and the combination of independent and conservative was at 52 percent so steve needs a little bit of work to do because i'm but it's also sure but it's also going to be a matter of course of uh, republicans aligning with the uh as i say purported nonpartisan candidate julie anderson right it all depends on how adamant republican voters are to keep a democrat out of that seat and i'm pretty adamant that when it comes to a party 
we know that the Democrats are dedicated to democracy. They're against voter suppression. There's so many things that we see in our Democratic Party. Steve Hobbs, as part of the Democratic caucus, is not only going to have his own dedication to democracy, but the entire caucus will be lined up to help make sure that he is aligned with democracy and, uh, and supporting our values. So I think that it's really important to share with friends and family and whoever you have a chance to talk to, that while the idea of an independent secretary of state, wow, that sounds like a clever concept. The reality is that our democracy is threatened and we know that the Democrats are the one party that you can absolutely count on to make sure they're gonna to try to get everybody to the polls. And so Steve Hobbs as a secretary of state will have not only his own convictions, but he's gonna have the convictions of the entire democratic caucus to help make that so. So in my mind, Steve Hobbs, easy check the box, Secretary of State Hobbs. Thank you for making that point so eloquently. Uh, and I certainly uh, endorse that uh, sentiment as well. I want to also talk about some of the legislative races that we've been tracking. And I want to start with the 26th LD. Um, this is Kitsap. Uh, this is Senator Emily Randall. This is her district. This is a seat the Democrats very, very much want to protect. How did she do in the primary? She did phenomenally well compared to the election in which she won by just over 100 votes four years ago. Um, I have been canvassing in the 26th based on a recommendation from Joe Fitzgibbon um, probably for about the last six years. Uh, we figure that we helped Emily win, and we're just really proud to uh, see that she has done so well and that her compatriots are also uh, looking like they, they may have some good opportunities. Yeah, tell us about uh, Addison Richards and, and Matthew Macklin. So yeah, this is, this is interesting. Um, Addison is a Democrat running for one of the House seats, and it's a House seat that was vacated by Jesse Young to run against Emily Randall. So in effect, there's no incumbent Republican in that seat. Now, it's a close race. Addison only received a third of a percent more votes than Addison's competitor. So all the work that the Randall campaign is doing to knock on doors, all of our friends in Bremerton and Kitsap who are out there knocking on doors, they need to continue doing that. But uh, that, that race, the, again, the momentum is in the right direction. Right. Uh, Matthew Macklin, who's running for the other House seat, which is held by incumbent Republican Michelle Caldier, She's in her fourth term, by the way, and Matthew only, he received 10% fewer votes than Michelle Caldier. So we know that there's a power of incumbency. Maybe now we can measure that it's 10% value to run as an incumbent. Uh, but right now, uh, Macklin is running 10% behind Caldier, and that may be a tough gap to close. But the this bottom line is that every door you knock in the 26th, those voters are going to get all three of those candidates on their ballot. And so you're turning out voters for um, three Democrats who, who really should go forward to the legislature if possible. This is a classic purple district and one I think that the Democrats are very intent on winning over. And as you say, it's going to take a lot of work but uh, certainly very much worth the effort. Also want to talk about LD10. This is uh, Whidbey uh, Island County, uh, Skagit area. Democrat Clyde Shavers did pretty well against the Republican incumbent. Uh, tell us about this. Yeah, Clyde did well. Um, he, in the, in the 10th, let's see, a shout out to the Flip the 10th group. They were active a couple years ago. They're, they're now kind of uh, revising, revitalizing themselves. 
um, to kind of jump in again and make sure to, to stir things up. So Clyde Shavers uh, took um, over half of the votes. He's ahead of the competition by 3.9%. And also another shout out, Dave Paul, who was, uh, you know, ran a close race last time. He is eight and a half points ahead of the competition. Oh, that's terrific. So that's good that's, to know. You know, and so we talk about momentum and we talk about the tr changes and, uh, and, and that's apparent in the 10th. It's looking good there. One last race that I do want to discuss is the Senate race in the 42nd. Representative Sharon Shoemaker is running for the open seat there uh, for the Senate seat. Um, how did she do in the primary? Uh, so Sharon, first of all, is an environmental champion and... Everybody knows we need more environmental champions in the state legislature to continue, to continue the record of climate and environment legislative wins that we've had in the last two or three years. Sharon did not do as well as I would hope. She's behind by about 6% on her competitor. Now, I know the folks in Bellingham are rallying and making sure that they're going to work to get the vote out. That's an area, again, where um, help would be needed to uh, make sure that those progressive climate conscious voters in the 42nd get to the get to the general election and check the box for Sharon Shoemaker. Putting all of this together, any speculation and obviously speculation is simply that, but I'll just ask you <laughs> uh, any ideas on how our primary may be uh, forecasting what might happen in the general election? Well, I think there's a couple of things we should think about, and this is the way I'm thinking about it. Um, the fact that we had so many progressive wins, I think success breeds success. I think that this is a motivator for voters who may have been looking at a red wave, as you mentioned earlier. Um, we're not seeing it in the primary. Um, the other thing that's interesting, um, typically we've I've always heard that Republicans historically vote more consistently in the midterm elections. And usually the party out of power the Republicans, also they're typically more motivated to vote. That may be changing. The Democratic numbers in this primary, in terms of turnout, bode really well for Democratic turnout in the general election. Um, for example, given this notion that voters whose party is out of power or conservative voters vote more frequently, I looked at all of the counties in Washington state. I looked at those who voted for Trump and I looked at those who voted for Biden, thinking that maybe the Trump counties had a higher turnout than the Biden counties. Not, not at all. They were within a two tenths of a percent in terms of turnout. So I think voters are from both parties are motivated. The other interesting thing that I looked at was what kind of turnout did we have in the 2020 election, looking at those same counties? And it turns out that the Biden counties had voter turnout 3% higher than the Trump counties. So I would say that this notion that Democrats are like not paying attention, um, that is maybe a thing of the past. And uh, I think I'm looking for more of that trend. We're going to see what happens in the general, of course. But uh, right now, the data from the primary in terms of turnout, I think is pretty encouraging. I would agree, and I think it has uh, much to do with uh, many of the factors, uh, the developments that we uh, began our conversation talking about. I do want to finish up in our time remaining by talking about the national picture. Uh, as I was mentioning, you know, Mitch McConnell is very worried about the Senate. Democrats look to have a decent, decent shot at expanding here. What are the trends looking like? 
that trend is also looking pretty good. The um, uh, we have work to do in the Senate. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, uh, the but the Democrats seem to be peaking, if you will. Think of a sports team, you know, prepping for the big game. The Dems seem to be peaking right about the right time. So let me just give you kind of a close uh, close look at what's going on in the Senate. We have identified four close Senate races, and it turns out though that in Florida with Republican Rubio, um, it looks like that is trending to Republicans. We're going to learn a lot about that in the primary. It's going to happen tonight. <laughs> so we'll be keeping our eyes on that. On the other hand, the uh, Maggie Hassan, the Democrat in New Hampshire, is pretty much trending towards Democrat. So those eight seats, you know, it looks like one's going R, one's going D. Now we're down to six seats. Let's talk about the Republicans. In Wisconsin, Johnson looks like they're claiming he's got a 60% likelihood to win, which is closer than than Rubio's chances in Florida. Okay, um, which in in other words, Johnson's that's a more competitive race than Rubio, but still, it looks like Johnson's favored. The other race with uh, Republican incumbency is in Pennsylvania, where Fetterman. They're claiming he's got a 73% likelihood of winning. So we know that the momentum in Pennsylvania is good. And it may have something to do with uh, putting uh, salsa on broccoli. We, we don't know. We'll never know. Well, I'm thinking that in that race, you know, Fetterman, he needs to get healthy and he can do that. But Oz, he can't stop being Oz, you know, so, <laughs> so I think Fetterman has a, has a built in advantage there. Throw in um, some, some, some tequila. And I think you're right. Yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, that's the Republican side. That's kind of how that's going. On the Democratic side, those races are all in the toss-up category. All four of the rating groups right now put them as toss-ups. Okay, that means win or lose. But of those who are looking at the likelihood of who's going to win, in Arizona, Kelly, 70% likely to win. Cortez Masto in Nevada, 60% likely to win. So those numbers are, are not looking too terrible. In War In Georgia with Warnock, 51% likely to win. So if you're looking for a race to support that is still as razor thin as, as the data that I can see, it's Georgia. The bottom line as I see it is I hope all those toss-up Senate seats stay in Democratic control, right? Because that means we are going to hang on to the Senate majority. And in Pennsylvania, we may, we may pick up a seat in Pennsylvania. But if those toss-ups go the wrong way, you know, we may lose a couple of seats in the Senate. So it's still close. But in the Senate, we have a good opportunity to at least retain, if not improve, the margins that we have. And then just one last thing. Uh, you and I have also been tracking governor's races across the country. What are a couple of races that we should be aware of and the developments in them? Yeah, so there's some good news here that, uh, and I'm really happy because governors play such a critical role in election integrity. But there's two states that have always been showing a likelihood of flipping from a Republican governor to a Democrat governor. And that's Massachusetts with Charlie Baker and Maryland with Larry Hogan. And the one change, these, these have been predicted to be like a likely Democratic pickup. The one change that's happened since we last talked is now two of those groups are showing in Maryland it moved from a likely Democrat to a solid Democrat. So again, the trend is in the right direction. While, and while you know we've probably all seen Larry Hogan, uh, he's a moderate Republican governor. He sounds like a really great guy. 
you know, Republicans just have way too many affiliations in their party to make it, I think, appropriately very difficult for even moderate Republicans to try to be a leader in our country these days. And so I'm really happy to see uh, those two Democrats uh, moving forward in, in those races. Yep, wholeheartedly agree. And I mean, these are two uh, blue, traditionally blue states. So, yeah, I would yeah. like to I think we would very much like to see them in Democratic hands across the board. Uh, I think that is it for this week. Any final thoughts before we go? Uh, 77 days. Um, we, um, you know, we had talked earlier about, you know, the challenges we face in the off year, inflation, you know, all the things that are going on. But, you know, um, I think the corner is behind us now and the trends are in the good direction. And the, I think the, oh, the enthusiasm gap is closing. Democrats and Republicans are both like equally enthusiastic to vote. Um, I just make, I think the key thing is that we have the momentum, the wind is at our back. We need to keep pushing. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what happens in November. Kev, my friend, thank you so much. We'll see you in September. I'm looking forward to that again. Take care, my friend. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video version of this podcast, head to facebook.com slash indivisible podcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.